know, you're engrossed in the worship when you almost have a seat and wonder what's happening next. I guess that's a good thing. Well, I was feeling bad for uh, Keith and Laurel Trapto this week. For those that don't know, they are um, hosting all of our youth at their house. The youth have a, a youth conference called Emerge that's put on by the Bible College. And Keith and Laurel, I don't know if they volunteered or somehow got randomly selected to, uh, to have all the, the guys stay downstairs and the girls stay upstairs at their house. And I thought, what a weekend for daylight savings time to end. <laughs> but then, you know, the more I thought about it, the, the more I thought, maybe there's a grace in that. I mean, the kids are going to stay up all night anyway. It's just one less hour that they have to deal with it, right? So just depends how you look at it. Well, let's pray to begin this morning. Father, what a privilege it is to come together, to open your word, to hear it, to be encouraged by it, to be convicted by it. We ask now that we would open our hearts, that we would put down our defenses, that we would hear your word spoken, and that your word would be heard. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to Oak Park Church of Christ. If you're new or visiting, a special welcome to you. We hope you enjoyed a coffee in the foyer this morning. I almost made that grave error. I was just about to pour mine when I realized it was the decaf. So, you, you laugh, but you'll thank me at about a half hour into the, serv- into the sermon. Uh, If you have questions after the service, uh, we have an info booth. Please visit it. Uh, They know pretty much, well, they know a lot more than I do, that's for sure. And if they don't know, they will be sure to put you in touch with someone who does know the answer to your question. Well, you may have noticed at the end of uh, service last week that when I came up to do the benediction, I usually give you a little bit of a teaser into what's coming up next week. But I didn't do that last week. And I'll admit it was one of those situations where I kind of wondered whether anyone would come back if I mentioned what we were going to be talking about this week. This week is the fourth week in our sermon series called Fast Friends. And that that sermon series is spanning the season of Lent. We've talked at length now about what Lent is and why we're practicing fasting together during this season. And we've decided... That fasting helps teach us to be like Jesus. That we fast because Jesus fasted. That was week one. And we decided that fasting helps teach us to repent of sin. That despite our universal human tendency to mess things up, that fasting teaches us to turn back to God, right? And then last week we looked at how fasting helps teach us to live a disciplined life. That life in the Spirit means a disciplined life of wisdom, where God helps us in our weakness. And now this morning we tackle the one that nobody wants to talk about. Fasting helps us to acknowledge our mortality. My wife says that I don't preach on popular topics, but come on, what's more popular than mortality, right? Also, just a reminder, um, 
There are only 18 days left. Hurrah! You're more than halfway through the fast if you started at the beginning. And I assure you that these last three weeks will be better and go smoothly, more smoothly than the first ones. And, and of course, if you haven't joined us yet in fasting, there's still time. 18 days is still a long fast. So I encourage you to take part, to join us as a church family as we journey together toward Easter. All right, so talking about mortality is, is probably not the kind of thing that you're going to engage in small talk this week, at least probably not outside your life group. But honestly, can you think of any more kind of existentially pressing question in most people's lives? Most of you have probably heard the uh, stand-up bit from Jerry Seinfeld about the most common phobias, right? Do you know this one? He says, the, the most common pho phobias, he says, the number two most common phobia in our culture is death. The most common one? Public speaking. That's right. He says, that means you would rather be in the casket than doing, doing the eulogy. Still, even if it is only the most, second most common phobia in our culture, it's still a very pressing issue in our culture. Well, if, uh, if death had a Facebook relationship status with our culture, I think it would definitely be, it's complicated, right? I heard some, some of you already knew that. Our culture has such a strange relationship with death. It seems uh, at the same time kind of repelled and, and repulsed by death but also it can tend to romanticize it and even at points kind of fetishize death. I mean, what can you say? Zombies are hot right now, right? And vampires for that matter and probably werewolves too. I, I don't know, I'm not really up on these things. You know, in Toronto you can actually go on zombie walks. This is, this is a true story. There's these groups. They get together and they do each other's makeup so they look like zombies and they wear these ragtag clothes and they just wander around the streets downtown. I have no, no first-hand experience with this, by the way. Well, maybe in a little bit more serious vein, we have uh, directors like Quentin Tarantino who can make multi-million dollar movies with you know, what we might describe as kind of laughably grotesque violence and death, right? But let me ask you, when was the last time you attended a wake at an individual's home for a family member or a friend? Even the political fight for the right to die, physician-assisted suicide, it's rampant in the courts and in the chambers of our politicians across the country. But the anti-aging industry of plastic surgery, health and diet products, superfoods, miracle cures, I mean, that industry has never been so lucrative. Even the fact that we'll share our grief with our neighbors, even with strangers when the latest tragedy occurs, the school shootings, terrorist acts, natural disasters, but at the same time we find it difficult to speak 
about death within our own families when one of us is diagnosed with a serious illness. So the reality is, friends, we have a, a fascination with death. Even, you might say, almost an obsession with it. That is, when it's kept at arm's length. When it doesn't impinge upon my own reality. When it's on a screen. But not when I have to touch its cold hands. This morning, uh, I'd like us to read a psalm together. Responsively. So I'll read one verse, you'll read the, the next. And then I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story. And after the story, we're going to explore an important distinction that the Bible makes between death and mortality. And then we're going to talk about two different ways that fasting fits with our need to acknowledge that mortality. So actually what I'd like you to do is um, read the first verse, and I'll read the second, and then it ends on verse 17. So it's a long psalm. Uh, And we'll read verse 17 together. Go for it. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. A thousand years in your sight is like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Our days may come to 70 years or 80, if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I was in uh, an appliance store this week, and while my salesperson was busy, I uh, was kind of inadvertently eavesdropping on the couple next to me. Really, it was inadvertent. And they were an elderly couple, and they were kind of at loggerheads with, the, with their salesman about uh, the extended warranty. And it wasn't really going anywhere, it was kind of just back and forth, and, and she was doing most of the talking, and he, the salesperson was trying his best to kind of get them locked into this extended warranty until finally the, the gentleman spoke up and he says, you know, the thing is, uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense to buy an extended warranty for an appliance when there's no extended warranty on me. 
Well, I'll tell you, if you want to shut down a salesperson, that's a pretty good line. I, I, had, I was kind of facing this way. I had to kind of take a glance over, and the salesperson was just, uh, I don't know what to say to that. But I mean, if there were warranties, right? Not, not life insurance, but if there were true warranties on life, who wouldn't shell out for that expensive extended warranty? Well, that's not the story that I want to tell you about, but it gives you a little bit of a window into this one. And, and this is kind of a story that numbers tell us. It's called uh, the story of the Great Transition. It's a story that's being told by uh, human geographers and sociologists. And so the Great Transition is nothing but this. It's the rapid increase in life expectancy from about 30 in the, at the start of the 19th century to 80 in the developed world today. That 30-year life expectancy was steady for more than 2,000 years. And it didn't matter what region of the world you lived in. The rapid and incredible rise is predominantly attributed to maternal and pediatric health. But it also has to do with extended longevity, too, through the advances in medicine and healthcare. At points over those two millennia, there were parts of the world that averaged one in three deaths of infants one year old or younger. One in three at points. And it was fairly standard for those 2,000 years plus to have one in four die in the first year. Today in Canada, we're talking about half of 1%. And there are developed countries that are actually better than us. The stats actually aren't that much different for maternal health, too, as far as the drastic change. I was reading a journal account from a medieval peasant this week. And um, he's astounded that both his wife and newborn child made it through the birth. When he notes that a half dozen in his small community over the past year have lost either the child or the mother. I mean, most of us just have no idea what that would be like to live amid. Have a look at this map. <clears throat> this is um, uh, from 2015, so it's the most recent data we have. It talks about life expectancy across the world. You'll notice the darker the country is, the longer the lifespan. You'll notice the cluster of the lightest ones are in Central Africa, and actually the, the shortest lifespan is right in the heart of Africa, the Central African Republic, 51.41 uh, years. Canada, 2015, 82.21. And it's not even the highest. Japan, 83.62. There's another stat from this map that I just want to highlight because it's us. It's our community. If you look at the countries that are less than 70 in lifespan, outside of the African continent, there are only two. You know what those two are? the war-torn country of Afghanistan and Haiti. Those are the only two outside of Africa that have a lower life expectancy than 70. 
You see, the great transition is a good thing. It's a good news story. It's brought us extended lifespans. It's brought us health. We've avoided the unnecessary grief of illnesses that are commonly treatable these days. And no one, no one is hoping for a return to the pre-transition era. But, you knew there was a but coming. There are a few things that have come with the great transition that I think we haven't given much thought to. And the first among those is the reality that death has become really hidden. The death industry, if you will, has become professionalized. In many cases, it's become depersonalized, out of sight, taken away. Real death, not zombie apocalypse screen death. Real death is out of sight largely, and it's mostly out of mind. And so we live and we exist in a culture where, where death is no longer the norm. It's, it's no longer, one, one author says, it used to be the threads that held the tapestry of life together. But it no longer provides that sort of backdrop for us in the day-to-day living of our normal lives. And we are without a doubt a death-defying culture, aren't we? I mean, what that means is is not only that we do our best simply to ignore death and to kind of push it to the perimeter of our lives, but we leverage all we can to defeat death entirely. Cryogenics, anyone? And so the question is, how are we as a church supposed to respond to this story of the great transition? Well, the first thing we might notice is that when we turn to Scripture, There's a subtle but important difference made in both the Old and New Testament between death itself and our mortality. On the one hand, and we sang about this this morning, I have to say, sorry, sometimes I switch into historian mode, but this first song that we sang that Danielle introduced, uh, trampling over death by death, right? You know that line? That line is is, uh, in what's called a troparian which is a part of the Eastern Orthodox literature. And that line was written in the 300s. And it's sung, repeatedly sung on Good Friday by Orthodox Christians since then. Every Good Friday, trampling over death by death. It's a beautiful song. i got to recover to see where I was. So, returning to the Apostle Paul, he can write that that death is the last enemy. And when it's swallowed up in victory, he says, by the cross it will be placed under Christ's footstool. And we will mockingly ask, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? You see, death here, according to Paul, is clearly a manifestation of evil. And it's a result of sin, Paul says. But the overcoming of this enemy is confirmed in the book of Revelation. When the risen Christ tells John, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys 
of death and Hades. And that's the picture of death as enemy. And I would suggest for all of us here in the room this morning, we have felt the sting of that enemy. And it burrows deep in our lives. We know death as enemy. This idea is so, so strong and so pervasive that it's been used in literature throughout the years. In fact, it was interesting for me this week to discover that it's used in things commonly today, as diverse as Harry Potter. Anyone? Death as enemy. She writes that right in there. Steals it from St. Paul, doesn't even cite it. Even Game of Thrones. I don't know if it's in the books, but apparently it's in the show. They talk about death as enemy. In fact, they talk about death as the last enemy. But it's clear that Scripture does not have the same outlook on our mortality as it does on our death. And that's a strange dichotomy for most of us. That is, to separate death and mortality. Yet we're told in the Old Testament that when Abraham died, he was old and full of years. And he was satisfied with life. Now, that doesn't mean that death was or is a good, but that somehow the good and the full life always comes with an end. It's, It's fitting. It's appropriate. Or we hear, as we read earlier, the psalmist imploring God to teach us to number our days as a practice, as a good practice, in fact. Repeatedly in Scripture, we come across examples of God limiting us as His creatures because of our sinful nature. It's actually a grace that God chooses to limit See, at the root of all this death-defying culture is not simply a repulsion towards death. That, that, friends, is shared with Scripture. But it's also a resistance to accept the limits of our creatureliness, if I can use that term. And that refusal goes directly against the grain of Scripture. So what do we mean by a refusal to accept our creatureliness? Well, it's nothing as abstract or complicated as it might sound. Instead, it's, it's simply a recognition that as creatures, we have a creator. And that creator has chosen to place limits upon us. And that, that is not a very popular idea today in our culture. Here's another way to look at that distinction. Death is an event, or a kind of non-event, right? We cease to be the way we had existed before. But mortality is a description of the kind of being we are. It's even a way of being in the world. Mortality is not an event, even though, of course, it assumes death by its very definition, But it's a claim on the type of life that we live. That is, a life that is not infinite, but finite. You might say, but we're eternal beings. We're made for eternal life with God. That's right. That's true. But here's the thing. We are only gifted that eternality from God. 
The gift of salvation is the gift of being in the eternal presence of God. It's not actually something innate within us. And moreover, because of the rupture of sin that we talked about, a reparation wholly dependent on the work of God is needed to receive that eternal gift. We can only fully know our immortality, our eternal life with, in, and through Jesus Christ when we fully embrace our mortality. As long as we continue to push death away, to ignore it, to pretend that it doesn't exist, to buy into this death-defying culture by refusing to accept the limits of our creatureliness, well, we cannot know our true eternality. You see, a prolonged finitude, which is what this great transition has brought us, right? a lengthening of our years, is still not infinity. They're not different quantitatively so, right? They're not different in number or measure. It's not like finitude is this and infinity is this. They're actually different in character. Materially different. They're qualitatively different. So I want to bring us back for a minute to our first week in the series as we looked at uh, the temptation of Jesus in the desert. It's pretty clear that this whole episode is a kind of reversal of the story of creation in the Garden of Eden. Now this may seem like a a little bit of a strange tangent for this week, all right? So bear with me, track with me, stick with me, and and we'll bring it around in the end, I promise. Well, what, what do we have in creation? We have simply this. God speaks something into existence that's other than himself, right? And in letting something other than himself into the world, God acts in a way that's consistent with his character. So he he carries out his true nature. What is his true nature? His true nature is to be gracious. And so creation is an act of grace. It's unmerited favor bestowed on something or someone other than oneself. And in the first story, we we have Adam, literally man, or the first man. And in the second, what do we have? We have Jesus, what the Apostle Paul calls the second Adam, or even the last man. And in the first story, We have a lush and plentiful garden, and in the second, we have a complete lack of vegetation. We have a desert. But in the garden, there is that same tempter that confronts Jesus in the desert, even though in our Lego stories up there, we have a snake on the one and a ghost on the other. In the garden, there is sufficient food and there's no need for anything. Adam's fully satisfied. And and yet, I think back to that last week in the Game Changers series that Martin preached. He's not content. And in the desert, there's the last man. Without food. Without company. Lacking even the most basic needs of human life. And yet, he is able to withstand the temptation. He shows that he's content satisfied to live by the living word of God. 
And so God creates humanity by filling dust with light. And it's our tendency to mess things up by filling life with dust. If the breath of God, His Holy Spirit, enters into dust and animates it, creating within it the very image of God, something God proclaims at creation as very good, then our unhealthy preoccupation with sin is the repeated attempt that tries to fill our lives with something that can be blown away with the easiest of breezes. A writer of that bizarre little book in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, seems to know this deeply. He says, Then I observed all the word and ambition motivated by envy. What a waste. Smoke spitting into the wind. You see, God has graciously made us creatures by filling dust with life. Why do we insist on messing it up by filling our lives with dust? But the good news, friends, is that when we turn back to God, when we repent and return from our dust-making, we're forgiven through the work of the one who was able to resist temptation in the desert. That is, the one who knew no sin was tempted, but knew no sin and chose to become sin on the cross so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. And so hear this. If creation is an act of grace, unmerited favor, our very existence only continues because of grace, then our reconciliation with God, the making right of what was vandalized by our dust-making, well, that is nothing but grace upon grace. You see, it's grace all the way down. Listen again to how Paul contrasts Adam and Christ in 1 Corinthians. How he talks about death in the midst of it. He says, for since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man, Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. Then the end will come when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father after He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Friends, there is nothing redeeming about death per se, as it exists. Death is the ringleader of the breaking of shalom that we talked about two weeks ago. And to acknowledge our mortality is not to celebrate death. In fact, it's just quite the opposite. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, says the grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, before creation. It's grace upon grace. It's grace all the way down. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death 
and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Traditionally, in the season of Lent, <clears throat> is begun by Ash Wednesday. You'll remember back, we started our fast on an ash, on a Wednesday, and it's called Ash Wednesday. On that day, uh, ministers have a, a practice of smearing ashes in the sign of the cross on the congregation's forehead. They impose this sign. They say a simple line. They say, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's not a celebration of death. It's a celebration of life. It's a reminder of our creatureliness and the gift of life that is ours through a Creator. And that we are His. And He has bound our existence. He has given our life shape. And He has even given our life an end. And it's good. Because it's all a gift. Acknowledging our mortality is an affirmation of Paul's words to the Corinthian church when he writes, What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Bringing it back once again to Jesus in the desert. What, what it means for the psalmist to say, teach us, O Lord, to number our days is simply a different way of saying, man does not live by bread alone, but by the living and active Word of God. You see, it's a, a complete and a total reliance on the will of God and the grace upon grace that He has promised you and I. So stop defying death and defeat it. Defeat it by surrendering our mortality to the Creator who made us creatures and who redeemed us while yet we were still sinners. You see, fasting actually does two things in relation to acknowledging our mortality. The first thing is, as a practice, it forces us to question whether in fact we truly believe that we do not live by bread alone. If we're unable to give up something in our lives for a period of time, do we really believe that we've surrendered our life to Christ? Can we honestly say that beyond the things of this world, we are being sustained and fed and nourished by the living Word of God? Friends, if we can't give something up, then we're holding fast to the death-defying culture. We're refusing to acknowledge our mortality. Refusing to believe that it's grace upon grace. That we're sustained as creatures through the grace that was granted in Jesus Christ. We're holding fast to the idea that we sustain ourselves. We create our own destinies. And so fasting, by being a practice of giving up, is not an ultimate giving up on life. It's an embodied way of coming to God in prayer and saying, I trust you. You got me. I don't live by bread alone. But I'm sustained by your creating and saving word. 
And the second thing fasting does is perhaps a little bit more straightforward and, and maybe teaches us a little bit more bluntly. Fasting itself is a witness to us and to those around us that we are mortal. <laughs> now, I'm not going to be dramatic enough here to say that when I don't have coffee, I have an acute recognition that my days are numbered. Though there are points when it feels a little bit like that. But there's a bit of a sense that hunger and even scarcity teaches us that. When we deprive ourselves of things, we realize just how quickly our equilibrium is thrown out of whack. We may not be as overstated as my four-year-old who frequently complains when she's hungry that she's starving. But we can come to the realization in short order that our bodies are fickle things. We may not be as robust or as impervious to death as we often consider. And the thing is, this is a witness not only to ourselves in that realization, but our own practice of fasting is also a statement to those around us about the fragility of life. And sometimes we need to be a bit uncomfortable to realize our mortality. The Bible seems to grasp this powerfully. Psalm 39 says, Show me, Lord, my life's end, the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. The practice of communion is, is the central practice of the Christian life. It's the core, the core celebration of death trampling over death. That is, the death of Christ swallowing up death as an enemy, defeating it, removing its sting. And so just like that small piece of cracker and the small cup of juice that we receive, that, that isn't the full feast that we're promised at the end of time. We partake of these elements in expectant hope that the last enemy will one day be silenced forever. And there will be no more pain, no more heartache, no more fear, and no more death. So when you receive the bread and the cup, take a moment, acknowledge your mortality, ask the Holy Spirit to help remind you of the grace of creation and of the grace of salvation. The grace upon grace that we have received from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, what we do, <clears throat> what do we have that we do not receive? As your Holy Spirit breathed into dust and created life, so may the same Holy Spirit descend on these visible signs of grace. Renew within us our life in you. Help us as we contemplate the sacrifice of your Son and his death on the cross to acknowledge our own mortality, the fact that we do not live by bread alone. Teach us to receive with grateful hearts all that you have given us. Amen.